uh, when Paul was reminding uh, the church in Corinth of the gospel that he preached and the gospel in which they stood, he said to them this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, in which you stand, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. Uh, Paul mentions in capturing the gospel three events, the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and then right in the middle he mentions the event of Jesus' burial. Why does he mention the burial of Jesus? Perhaps because burials are really the final process in death. They confirm the concrete reality that indeed the person has died. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 41, asks the question, why was Jesus buried? Answer, to confirm the fact that he was really dead. I know that I have found in the last 15 years of, of pastoral ministry, participating in and attending many uh, burials and funerals, grave, graveside services, it's often not until the body is being lowered into the ground that the realization hits people that their loved one, their friend, their brother or sister in Christ is indeed dead. And that's often when emotions will begin to flow. If there was any doubt or any question as to their mortality, that doubt is dispelled when they see the body placed in the grave and is completely buried. And while much of our culture uh, would rather deny the possibility of death, or distract oneself from the reality of it, the scriptures look death square in the eyes and speak right into it. They confront the reality of death. And here, as we continue in Matthew's gospel, we've come to the last verses of chapter 27. We have considered and seen the suffering and scourging of Jesus and his crucifixion and his final words on the cross. But now there's an emphasis upon the event of his burial. And in all of it, he enters into the valley of the shadow of death that in the end we could say with Paul, where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. So Matthew 27, beginning at verse 57 through the end of the chapter. Listen now to God's word. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate, he asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said that while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day lest his disciples go and steal him away, and they tell the people, he's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, 
You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. What a striking contrast uh, between the burial of Jesus and the rest of the Passion Week. Going back to chapter 21 on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry and the crowds uh, laying down branches and, and cloaks, shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, salvation to him. They're recognizing his kingship with great noise. Fast forward, and then you have the intimacy of Maundy Thursday. Jesus sharing the Passover meal, uh, breaking the bread and saying, this is my body, which is for you. Uh, Prefiguring or, or foreshadowing what would happen on the very next day, Good Friday. And then Good Friday comes, and we see the pain and the agony that Jesus underwent. Our Lord's suffering. And then, of course, we have the anticipation of Resurrection Sunday coming and the conquering of death itself. There's so much that has happened in this Passion Week. Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday. But it has all led now to the burial of our Lord. Really the silence, we might call it, of Saturday. And it's led to two women, Mary Magdalene and another Mary sitting outside this sealed tomb. All four of the Gospels give attention to the burial of Jesus, this event. It's not Good Friday. It's not Resurrection Sunday. This is the silence of Saturday. Our Savior's body lies still. Uh, This is a scene, uh, this is a narrative in which there appears to be no life, only silence. Among other things, that's one thing a burial site or a cemetery communicates. Silence, the absence of life. For eight years of our our life, for our family, we lived right across the street from a cemetery. And one thing we knew we could count on were quiet neighbors. You don't expect sounds coming from a cemetery. You don't expect life emerging from the grave. But this burial site here in the gospel narratives, this is different. This is a different Saturday. This tomb is different. Because there's not only silence, there must have been feelings of defeat and discouragement and deep despair. Remember, the disciples had fled the Lord. They had fled him upon upon his arrest in Gethsemane. And now... Likely knowing of his cross and his death and his burial, they must have felt lifeless, a sense of hopelessness. I wonder if they asked themselves that question that Job asked. If mortals die, will they be raised again? Will they live again? In Job 14. This is what burial This is what Silent Saturday feels like. Despair, emptiness, hopelessness. It's the feeling one has the morning after the funeral. The morning after one receives that diagnosis. The morning after there is a relational division. The morning after one's plans fall apart. And sometimes it doesn't just last a day. 
It can be a very long season. I think in many ways it's what we have been experiencing for months and months. Life can feel like it's being stripped away, hope depleted. And everywhere you look, you see one thing, a large stone blocking the way. The door seems sealed. One person wrote this, At the burial of Christ, we do not want the possibilities that are before us. We want the impossible. We want life, more life, new life. And on Holy Saturday, that looks impossible. And yet, I would propose that even at the burial of our Lord Jesus, there are glimpses of light and life. And the first glimpse of life is found in this quiet but faithful disciple. Someone who's continuing to persevere, continuing to serve, continuing to worship, continuing to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we have in this character, Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 57 says, When it was evening... There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. J.C. Ryle, in his expository thoughts on the Gospels, makes the point that we should learn here from this that our Lord Jesus has friends of whom little is known. All four of the Gospels give attention to this character, Joseph of Arimathea, yet we know little about him. We never hear about him, as far as I know, before this incident. We never hear about him after it. He kind of just slips quietly into history, and then he slips quietly out of history. We do know that, according to Luke's gospel, that Joseph was a part of the council, the Sanhedrin. He was a part of the high Jewish court, but Luke makes note that he did not consent to deliver Jesus over to the Romans, and that he was looking for the kingdom of God. Perhaps of greatest importance is what Matthew tells us. He is a disciple of the Lord Jesus. And there's some wonderful lessons to receive from this man. For one, his testimony should be serving as an example and an encouragement to us about being bold in bearing witness for the person in the name of Jesus Christ, in our association with Jesus Because this is a night, Good Friday, and a day, Silent Saturday, in which those who should have been most present and faithful were absent, the twelve. They had fled the Lord. They had forsaken the Lord, in a way. And this is a time when it was dangerous to profess the name of Christ. This is a time when there was no natural, no earthly advantage to calling oneself a Christ follower. We might say that's becoming increasingly true in our own culture and day. A pastor friend of mine likes to say, in New England, there is no cultural capital in being a Christian. Perhaps there was a time or pockets within the nation, our nation still today, in which there is some capital that you gain in calling yourself a Christian. Perhaps it it communicates in a sense of integrity or trustworthiness in your character, some godly traits. Today, in associating with Christ, you might just receive some kind of awkward looks. 
Why would, why would you do that? Why would you associate with Jesus? Or worse, you, you might be viewed as closed-minded, a bigot, prejudiced. Well, it was well beyond that in Joseph's day. There's a danger in being a disciple. But what does Joseph do? What does he do? He risks his position among the Jews. He risks his reputation in order to serve the Lord. The commentator Frederick Bruner says, he's the only disciple who serves the Lord in this hour of great need. And so this one person here in his presence, kind of coming out of the blue in this critical situation, is is a great reminder. God has his people. There are faithful saints serving the Lord, those whom we know little about or nothing about, and yet God is working through them. God continues to be at work. Even in the midst of what appears to be a most hopeless circumstance, God is at work through his people. But there's more to learn through Joseph's service. Here he is, a member of the Sanhedrin, is a respected and influential position among the Jews. He goes to Pilate, he asks for Jesus' body, that he can ensure and oversee the burial. And verse 59 says, Joseph took the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb. Well, the tomb, as was custom, was was likely cut out horizontally in the earth or out of rock, rather than as we're accustomed to vertically. And the entryway was, they suggest, maybe about three feet high, and a stone was ordinarily rolled over the entryway to guard from predatory animals. And as I read this, not only does the reference to the body of Jesus here being wrapped in a clean linen cloth, bring us back to Advent and to the birth story of Jesus. As Luke tells us that upon the birth of Jesus, he's wrapped in swaddling cloths. He's placed in a manger. But here at this burial, Matthew includes three words that are not included in the other synoptic gospels in Mark and in Luke. One, it's a clean linen shroud. Two, it's a new tomb. It's not shared by any other family members, as would often be the case. And it is a great or large stone. Clean, new, great. Some suggest this is a way that Matthew's communicating Joseph's commitment as a disciple of the Lord in his honoring the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And did you notice that Joseph is a rich man? The last time we saw a rich man in Matthew, the prospects looked very dim. That was Matthew 19, the rich young ruler. When Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And now, guess what? You've got a rich man. And he's a rich disciple. Faithful to the Lord. Miracles do happen. The wealthy can look beyond themselves for the cause of Christ. One person said, Joseph represents that member of the community willing to risk his resources for the sake of one in extreme need. His discipleship motivated his care and his wealth enabled it. Think back earlier in the Passion Week or just prior, perhaps, to Passion Week 
It's recorded in the previous chapter when the woman Mary anointed Jesus with the expensive ointment, this extravagant and costly act of devotion. Here, Joseph is using what God has given to him, his resources to bless and honor uh, the Lord. God gives to us, his people, resources, time, goods, gifts. And here we have individuals who have the eyes to see and the willingness to seize the opportunity to magnify and to honor the name and the renown of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. To take those opportunities to exalt the name of Christ. And we also learn from Joseph how God uses very ordinary, common people to carry out his glorious purposes. Not only is Joseph never mentioned before or after this episode, he just fills four or five verses in the text. But the whereabouts of Arimathea is uncertain. Some think it's 20 miles northwest of of Jerusalem and the hills of Ephraim, but it's unknown, it seems obscure. But God uses ordinary characters. And it's not just Joseph. You have Mary Magdalene and this other Mary in verse 61 sitting opposite the tomb. Their presence is emphasized. They are there, faithful and present. Mary Magdalene was at the cross. She's at the burial. And she's going to be at the resurrection. It all spells faithfulness, fidelity. So Saturday appears hopeless and lifeless, yet God's working through his faithful followers. And this is to give us strength and encouragement. Are we faithfully walking after the Lord? You have faithful followers at the burial, but you also have what I'm calling fraudulent foes. That's what you have in verses 62 to 66. As Jesus' body is taken from the cross on Good Friday, he's buried, we're told in verse 62, the next day, the Sabbath, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered, they came to Pilate, they said, Sir, we remember how this imposter said that while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Thus order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees and perhaps the broader Jewish community, they believed in the whole concept of resurrection at the end of history. But they had no concept, no belief that there would be a resurrection in the middle of history. That was a new category. And they were not only certain of that, but they were certain this Jesus would not be raised, and that he was no Messiah. But what they wanted to ensure is that no false report would surface about Jesus being raised. They wanted to guard his body so that it could not be stolen. False reports starting to spread. So Pilate says to them in verse 65, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went, they made the tomb secure, by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Key word, secure. 
Matthew uses it three times in these few verses. The Pharisees say to Pilate in verse 64, order the tomb to be made secure. Again in verse 65, Pilate says, go, make it secure as you can. And then in 66, so they went and they made the tomb secure. The whole effort, the whole quest of kind of anti-Christian power is all about securing the defeat of Jesus. And yet, little do they know, as J.C. Ryle again puts it, that in their effort and power to secure the tomb, they were providing the most complete evidence of the truth of Christ's coming resurrection. He says their seal, their guard, their precautions were all to become witnesses in a few hours that Christ had risen. They, they might, have, might as well tried to stop the tides of the sea or to prevent the sun rising, as to prevent Jesus coming forth from the tomb. The history of the church of Christ is full of examples of a similar kind. The very things that have seemed most unfavorable to God's people have often turned out to be for their good. What harm did the persecution which arose about Stephen do to the church of Christ? They were scattered and they went everywhere preaching the word. In Acts 7, what harm did imprisonment do to St. Paul? It gave him time to write many of the epistles which are now read all over the world. What harm does persecution do to the people of God at this very day? It only drives them nearer to Christ. It only makes them cling more closely to the throne of grace, to his word, and to prayer. Friends, persecution, suffering, Sin, disappointment, and death are all marks of living in this world. This is a world out of sorts. As Paul describes it in Romans 8, the world and we ourselves are groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly the redemption of our bodies. This is the silence of Saturday. And sometimes that silence, that pain, that loss, or that doubt lasts a whole lot longer than one day. That's why we gather together. To remind one another from the Word of God, the glorious promises and truths and presence that the Lord has given to us. That's why we gather in Bible studies. That's why we've begun to start discipleship groups so we can encourage and strengthen one another by the Holy Spirit in His Word. We need to remind one another. Yes, Saturday can feel like a long time, but we know Sunday is coming. We know that reality. Saturday raises questions and fears and doubts, but Sunday is coming. The grave will not have the last word. Our hope is not to live a little bit longer or to extend our days just a few more. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. He is the resurrection and the life. We know the story. We know that Sunday does come. That indeed He is risen, that He is ascended, that He is seated at the right hand of God with all power and dominion. And we know the end of the story our own resurrection. 
Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Death is swallowed up in victory. Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 15. And he ends that chapter by saying, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Where are the Mary Magdalene's and the Joseph of Arimathea's today? who in the long silence of Saturday will be steadfast, will be looking to honor the Lord Jesus Christ and His body. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank You for the gospel of our salvation, that through Your Son's death, burial, and resurrection, that we have been granted new life. Oh Lord, help us that, as Paul says in Colossians, since we have been raised with Christ, may we set our minds on things above, where Christ is seated, where we are united with Him. Oh Lord, we pray that You would grant to us grace, a steadfast spirit, faithfulness, and Lord, that we would Rejoice in being a disciple of the Lord Jesus. That we would count the cost and that we would give thanks for the blessing of being a part of the body. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the sufficient strength to continue in what sometimes feels like an extended silent Saturday. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to fix our hearts and minds upon Indeed, the hope that we have in the risen uh, Savior, our Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray your blessing as we fellowship and commune with you, Lord, through the Lord's Supper. And we pray all this with thanks in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.